Welcome to the WP Tonic Podcast, brought to you by WPTonic.com, a WordPress maintenance and support service for business owners. We talk to the leaders in WordPress, business, and online marketing communities, bringing you insights on how to grow your business and achieve success. Welcome back, folks, to the WP Tonic Show. This is episode 355. I'm excited, listeners and viewers. I've got somebody that I really admire to come on the show. Hopefully, he's going to be be happy with the interview. And that's Mike Tabler. And he's from the Startups for the Rest of Us podcast, which I've been listening to myself for donkey's years. Mike, would you like to introduce yourself to the listeners and viewers quickly? Um, I think you kind of said it right there. I mean, I'm the co-founder of the uh, Micropreneur Academy, which is kind of the backstop for uh, our podcast, Startups the Rest of Us, our online community for self-funded uh, startup entrepreneurs, uh, mostly in the software space. Uh, that's called Founder Cafe. And then I'm also the co-founder under that umbrella uh, with Rob Walling, of course, of the of MicroConf, which is a conference that we host a couple times a year. We do it in Vegas, and then we also do it one in Europe, uh, usually in the fall. The one in Vegas is in the spring. And that, I thought the last one was in Croatia, wasn't it? Yep. Yeah, it was in Croatia. So it was a gorgeous location. It was the first time we'd had it there. And uh, I can't say I have any faults with the place other than it was just a long way to fly. Yeah, I've been there myself, but when I was living in Europe. Um, Cindy, my co-host, would you like to introduce yourself to the listeners and viewers, Cindy? Sure, absolutely. Hi, everyone. Uh, Cindy Nicholson here from thecoursewhisperer.com. And I help entrepreneurs who are wanting to create online courses, uh, help them make them good. And I thought I'd have Mike on because I, I personally think there's a lot of synergy between the bootstrap startup community. And if you're starting a membership site or you have a WordPress developer and you're looking to start a product. And I thought, why not go to somebody that I've been listening to for years that has influenced me? So let's go to the masters. So I thought, let's try and get Mike on. So Mike, first of all, do you think, um, as we were discussing before we went live, I think a lot of people, um, and it's in the startup community with apps and with membership sites, they there's still a tendency to think, you know, we, we, we will build a fantastic course, we will build a fantastic app, and people will just come and use it. Um, but it doesn't really work, does it, Mike? No, I, th- I think part of the problem is that most people envision themselves as smart people, and you ask, you know, a whole room full of people, how many people think they're above average intelligence? Like, most of them will raise their hand. And... <laughs> We all want to think we're Steve Jobs, but the reality is that even Steve Jobs didn't have the distribution network that Apple does at this point. So when he was able to go out and like work in a cave for several weeks or months or, you know, or even years on a new product, like he still had Apple's distribution engine behind him to be able to take that product and, and push it out in front of people. And it didn't matter like the, what the flaws of the product were. And, you know, you can ask any, you know, Apple zealot, like, they'll say there's no flaws or nothing wrong. But obviously, like there, there were major problems that came out for some of the products and they still overcame them. But the distribution strategy that they had, the marketing engine to get in front of people, that was built in and he didn't have to worry about it. He could just create a great product. Whereas the rest of us, we have to not only create the product, but we also have to get in front of people. And you can't just focus on one without the other because it's never going to work. So have you got any kind of insights um, through the guests and your discussions with Rob, some basic tactics that somebody should consider if they're trying to build up 
um, a pre-launch audience for their membership website or, or their app or whatever they plan to sell online? Um, the easiest—I I won't say easiest—but the that, that was the—that was a small yeah. question to ask you. Wasn't sure. It? Yeah. The uh, I, I think one of the better strategies, I'll say, um, not the best because obviously it depends a lot on your situation. But one of the better strategies that uh, I think has the most potential to work for most people is to leverage other people's audiences. So part of that includes expanding your own network, you know, learning more about other people who have their own audiences that they've built because they got their audience from someplace and it's usually from other people's audiences. And yes, at some point you have to backtrack to some central location, which was probably AOL back in the day, but everyone has built their audiences over time. And if you're new to the game, you're new starting out, you don't have a list of any kind, you have to get it from somewhere. You have to build it somehow. And that means getting in front of people and the best way to do that is to get in front of other people's audiences and kind of, I won't say market yourself or pitch yourself to them, but, you know, provide value to them and let them know, hey, I'm here and these are, this is the way that I can help you. Yeah, I follow the logic. Cindy, got a question? Yeah, so, so again, kind of similar to what Jonathan's saying, there's a lot of, you know, because people are, if they're launching membership sites or online courses, it's like launching a product, you know, just a, information product, so to speak. So, I, I, you know, I have a lot of people when they come to me, they're like, okay, well, I want to create a course on such and such, or I want to create a, a membership on such and such. And, um, you know, they haven't really yet done any work behind the scenes as to figure out whether or not it makes sense. They're kind of asking me for my advice. And and I often say, I don't know, what does your audience say? So so what what do you recommend, you know, when people come to you with an idea of, of a product or a solution to something? What what rigor or what process do you recommend them going through to really kind of validate whether or not it's a good idea to move forward with it? Um, so that depends a little bit on the specifics of what it is that they're trying to do because there's, there's going to be different answers if you're building a membership site versus a course versus, um, you know, a, a, an iPhone app or something like that. Like each of those things has its own subtle nuances. And some of them I'm going to be familiar with and some of them aren't. I always caveat it with like, here's what I think, but I'm not the, like, especially, and this is especially true if it's not something that I would purchase because I'm not really the target audience. I always caveat it. It's like, I wouldn't buy this, but I'm not in your target audience. So take whatever I say here with a grain of salt. And I think that that's a common mistake that people make is that they assume when they are hearing somebody talk on a podcast or from a stage at a conference, like, oh, this, this information applies to me. And over time, you get jaded and you realize that it's maybe great information, just not great for you, given where you're at and exactly what you're doing. So I always try to make sure that I preface whatever I say with like, hey, this just take this with a grain of salt because this may not be directly relevant to you. Um, all of that said, the best thing in most cases to do is to try and get in front of as many people as you can that actually that you believe would purchase it. So if you're targeting people who, um, you know, are parents, for example, because you've got an idea for an iPhone app that integrates with daycare or something like that, um, you have to, in that case, you have to talk to not just the parents, but also the daycare itself to see if they're interested. Cause you can't get, if you can't get those two sides to both buy into the idea, then it's never going to work. Um, and so, the idea of it like a two side and that's that's almost like a two sided market, which I would not advise like self funded companies to go after in any way, shape, or form. Um, but you have to make sure that you're aware of all the people who are going to be involved in whatever that decision making process is. So 
in a larger company, for example, and let's say you're targeting developers, you have to not just keep in mind who the developers are who are, who are going to be using the product, but who's actually paying for it. What purchasing needs do they need to go through? Um, so when you're looking at that, it's like how how do you differentiate between those two and how do you get in front of them and who's going to push the product forward or try and make the uh, make management aware like are you going from bottom up or are you trying top down and depending on what your resources are you might do one versus the other might be depend on the product how it's installed or how it's used sometimes you can do an end around with like the sales reps sales reps tend to have like a lot of leeway in what they can do especially at larger companies because sales reps are kind of hired guns for the most part and whatever they do that brings in sales is going to like management tends to be okay with it. But if you try to go into IT department, Hey, like, can I help out your sales department? They're going to say, no, this is just, we don't do that. You know, go pound sand and go do whatever, but don't talk to us. Yeah, no, I think that makes a lot of sense in terms of making sure that you really get to the people who would be using the product, but maybe not even them, the, the next level in terms of how it's going to be leveraged and utilized. So mm-hmm. thank you for that. Uh, Jonathan. Yeah, so you got your own <clears throat> you got your own membership website. Um, so, what are some of the what's the first couple of surprises that you come across when you started your own membership site that you didn't envision there might? Um, well, so when we first started out, um, the membership site that we put together was mainly for self-funded software entrepreneurs. And we were building what essentially amounted to a course. And then we had forums alongside of it. So there was uh, like a whole set of, uh, actually at, at first there was almost no content. We were essentially marketing the content and then building it as we were publishing it. So people could buy a monthly subscription. And while they were I think we had about three or four months worth of content. And then every week or every two weeks, we would push out more content. And it was all just-in-time stuff. So like we'd say, okay, this is the next stuff on the list. And it'll be, it'll be out in two weeks. So we had two weeks to build it is really what it came down to. And people were paying us on a monthly basis for it. And what we, we kind of came to a conclusion at one point where we were about 15 or 16 months in that we were putting just as much effort into the tail end of the content as we were into the month one and month, you know, as we had in month one through five or six. So what happens is inevitably with a membership site or a course like that, people are going to drop off. You have churn associated with it. So the, the stuff that we built in month 16 was being viewed or, and seen a lot less than in month one because you didn't get access to it until you got to month 16 because it was laid out in the course. So we shortened it down. We compressed it and said, okay, this is just going to be a 12-month course and we'll take those extra four months. We'll push them back in. And then we offered a lifetime membership after 12 months. So you could pay for 12 months and then you get in and that was, uh, and then you were kind of a grandfathered in as a lifetime member. And so that was one thing we learned is like the, just the conceptually, if you were going to continue generating content the entire time, at some point that content, especially if you're trying to teach people stuff, it becomes less useful to them because presumably if they have absorbed what you're teaching them, they no longer need to be taught. So that was how we dealt with it well, at the do, time. You do, you do hope, don't you, Rob? You, do you would hope, yes. I mean, you know, if you're, if you're good at what you do and you actually, you know, uh, care about the people that you're teaching, then yes, you would care, you'd think about that. But it wasn't something we thought about when we first started doing it. 
Um, so that was the way we solved it. Uh, I have seen uh, Remit Seti talk about how they shut they had a membership site that they shut down because it was actually costing them more than it than it was generating, um, and it was something like two million dollars a year or something like that. It was some ridiculously high number, and they just shut it down because it was costing them too much and their churn was too high. So they just said, we're, we're done with this. Um, I'm sure that there's a detailed article on it some some place online. I just don't remember exactly where it is. So churn, you know, it's the dark secret of any kind of membership, you know. Um, do, have you learned um, anything about how you keep people engaged in your course and any active insights about how you developed your course to reduce churn? Yeah, so there's a couple of things that um, I would probably advise people to look at. And, you know, there's, it depends a lot on how your course is set up. But uh, if it's an actual course and you, there, there's a definitive starting and ending point with it, and you're trying to, uh, let's say it's a $500 course, but you charge them monthly for it to kind of keep them from, you know, having to pay $500 all up front. I have seen marketers where they'll say, oh, well, you can charge on a quarterly basis or an annual basis. And if you prepay, this is the price versus monthly would be $50 a month. But if you, you have to do that over 12 months, it's $600. But if you buy it all up front, then it's $500. So you just save some money. Um, there's other ways to do that as well. If you have something, a similar setup where if you notice where there's a point where churn starts to become an issue. Um, it probably won't be in that, like the first month of churn will probably be higher in most cases anyway, just because you get people in who aren't the right fit. And then months two, probably through five or six or something like that, you probably have some churn here and there, but there's probably going to be a point where people have absorbed enough of the information that they feel like they know what they're doing. They can't necessarily justify the, the cost of, of continuing. So at that point, you can either look at what else can you provide them at that point that would be valuable, or you could pitch them on, hey, buy the rest of this course now and we'll give you a discount. Um, and that's actually the way that we approached it. We looked at our our churn along the way and found that after month four, between five and seven, churn tended to go a lot higher. So at month four, we basically pitched, hey, you can get a lifetime discount. We'll credit you for everything that you've paid so far, and we'll give you a, a discount that you would have gotten had you bought it all up front. So then they pay a couple hundred dollars. They get a, you know, so, some, uh, a, a slight discount, and then they get the rest of it, but they also get it immediately. So you're essentially, instead of sp spreading that value out over the next six months, you get it right now. That's great. That's really very insightful. Cindy? Yeah, no, I, I, I think that's a really interesting approach, especially when you're looking at your churn and what can you do to kind of keep them on um, and not lose them. So I, I haven't heard that approach before. So that's, that's really neat. Um, so, you know, again, part of membership sites and everything is, is building an online community and, and um, you know, keeping people um, – you know, engaged and interested in what you're doing, you know, you've got your podcast as part of it, but what, uh, you know, and so you probably have right now a pretty engaged online community. So can you talk about your thoughts and advice around how to go about doing that and how to keep your people, your people keep coming back for more? Mm -hmm. um, so when you say keep people coming back for more, uh, in what context are you talking about? Like a, just a, in general, a community like that's open and free or like a paid membership because they are very, very different. Well, maybe starting with the free community in terms of because that's really maybe your starting point, right? And mm -hmm. then and then kind of what what are the differences then when it is in a in a paid community? 
So I think we're so when I think of a, a an online free community, I think more of a sense of belonging. So for example, we have a podcast, and we say the startups the rest of us community, but there's no website you can go to where it's like just startups the rest of us you know, people talking about that stuff. We don't have a Facebook group. We don't have free forums or anything like that. It's more the idea uh, or a sense of identity for most people. It's like, oh, I listen to this. You know, I'm in the microconf community. Maybe you went once or maybe you feel like you belong there or you should go, but you haven't gone yet. So I feel like that's more of an identity thing. Um, I think, you know, you could say I'm part of the Reddit community because you go there and you participate in the forums, but that's a very different uh, sense of, you know, what it is that you're doing there and why. There you're kind of killing time versus, you know, trying to educate yourself or, uh, you know, be a member of a particular social group. The difference, I think, with that versus like with our with Founder Cafe or when, you know, previously it was the Micropreneur Academy, we had the course and then we also had forums that were associated with it. One of the things that we did was we introduced the idea of cohorts and we tested this early on where we had a mechanism where you could sign up at any time or um, actually, the, let me step back. The, the sign up mechanism itself, uh, we tested between allowing people to sign up at any time versus, okay, we're going to run basically a monthly launch. So you sign up and anywhere between four and six weeks, something like that, you sign up for this mailing list. And then when we get to a point where we decide that that list is big enough or we want to do a launch, we email them, put them in a new bucket and say, look, we're going to be doing a launch. It's going to be in seven days. This is what it's going to entail. And we put them through an email sequence that basically leads up to it. So we're essentially, maybe it was, you know, 50 people, 100 people, 200 people, however many you get to that you want to do that with, you treat them as if it's a brand new launch for a brand new product. And it's not, it's the same product that you have. It's just, that's kind of how you're pitching it to them and marketing them. And if they don't sign up, they will not be able to sign up for another six to eight weeks. So they're going to have to wait. What that does is it essentially puts a time pressure on them that you don't have if you can just go to a website and sign up for it anytime. Um, and after testing this, we found that the conversion rate on that was a roughly four to one. So we got a four times as many people sign up during those times where we did a launch versus when it was just open enrollment at any time you feel like it. The other thing that it does is by having a set of forums there that people could interact with them, let's say that we had 25 people signed up. Um, and this is something that we did at the at that point, whereas we limited the number of people who could sign up during any cohort. We say, look, there's only 25 spots. And if you don't get one, you're going to have to wait till the next time. So that also puts a little additional pressure on people to make a decision one way or the other. If it's open enrollment, people can decide at any time, oh, I'll come back to this. And that's really why most websites don't have like great conversion rates because you can you know that you can always go back to a website and read whatever articles are there. There's no time pressure. But if there's a sign up deadline, that time pressure is there and you have to make a decision, you know, one way or the other. Can you get a refund? Sure, that's not a big deal. But the time pressure and um, all the stuff that goes with it, the fear of missing out, those are the types of things that make people make the decision either positively or negatively. And that's that's good for you as a uh, person running that membership site. The side effect of that is that when people sign up, you've got a bunch of new people that come in. And if you have forums where they can interact with them, they're all new people going in all at the same time. And they're much more likely to act, to, to talk and engage and post things than they would if they'd been a member for three months or six months. And by doing that on a very regular basis, let's say once a month, you get this influx of new people that are all active and very engaged all at the same time. And it creates these spikes in activity basically once a month. Um, 
we don't actually do this for Founder Cafe right now, <laughs> but that's because it, we've switched it over to a new system. And honestly, like our focus has uh, been much more on microconf than it has been on Founder Cafe. But um, that is a direction that like we need to go back to that. We just haven't had time to be perfectly honest. Let's yeah. Go ahead, Jonathan. Yeah, we're going to go for a break, folks. Uh, it's been an amazing conversation so far. Thanks, Mike. You provided so much value. But we're going to go for a break, folks, and we'll be back with this discussion with Mike, and it's going to be fantastic. Be back in a few moments. Do you want to spend more time making money online? Then use WP Tonic as your trusted WordPress developer partner. They will keep your WordPress website secure and up to date so you can concentrate on the things that make you money. Examples of WP Tonic's client services are landing pages, page layouts, widgets, updates, and modifications. WP Tonic is well known and trusted in the WordPress community. They stand behind their work with full, no question asked, 30 day money back guarantee. So don't delay. Sign up with WP Tonic today. That's wp-tonic.com. Just like the podcast. Coming back, it's just been mind-blowing. Thanks so much, Mike. But before we continue the discussion, I want to talk about one of our great sponsors, and that's WP Fusion. And what does WP Fusion do, does? Well, in your technology stack, there should be two things, WordPress and your CRM. And what WP Fusion does, it enables you to communicate through WordPress to your CRM and put that communication on steroids. I haven't got the time to go through all the amazing things, especially if you've got a membership site, e-commerce. If any of those, you've got any of those two um, type of uh, website platforms, WP Fusion will help you communicate with Active Campaign Drip. All, all the leading um, CRMs. So if you go to WP Fusion and you use the coupon code WPTONIC, all one word, uppercase, you get a unique special offer that's only offered to you listeners and viewers. And that's 25% of any of the WP Fusion packages. And you only get that offer from WP Tonic. Go to their website, buy one of their packages, be blown away. So, Mike, so on about the conferences, you know, <clears throat> why um, did you decide to start a conference? Did it come from you or Rob or the both of you at the same time? Because it's a hell of a lot of work, isn't it, Mike? Yeah, it is. Um, I don't remember uh, whose bright idea it was, to be honest. Um <laughs> I say that slightly tug in cheek, um, but no, I, I honestly don't remember. But I do remember having discussions around it, and this, this blame Rob, shall we? What was that? This blame, blame Rob. Blame Rob. Yes, <laughs> blame blame him for all the troubles, and I'll try to take credit for everything. But no, it's it, I mean, it was a collaborative effort on pretty much everything. The the I'll say the rough timeline was in two thousand. I think it was 2009, we started the Micropreneur Academy. So that was our, our membership website. And then in 2010, we were looking for ways to market it and how we would get in front of people. And one of the ideas we came up with was to create a podcast. So we called it Startups to the Rest of It. And that really resonated with a lot of people in the community. And then fast forward to the end of the year, we thought, hey, wouldn't it be great to get 
people who are in our uh, membership site and listening to the podcast together at an in-person conference, an in-person event. And that's how MicroConf came out. So it was the timeline was 2009 membership site, 2010 podcast, 2011 conference. In looking at it from a, a strictly, uh, a, I'll say, product point of view, what we should have done was switched it up a little bit and we should have done the podcast first to essentially help establish a community. And then after that, create the paid membership site. And then after that, create the conference. Um, because in terms of, uh, of how much you pay for it, for example, podcast is free. That's kind of the quote unquote entry level products. And then you have the membership website, which costs on a monthly basis or an annual basis. And then after that, you've got this in-person event, which, you know, people are going to spend a couple thousand dollars to go to. So in terms of pricing, free, small entry point, and then, you know, much larger, you know, one-time purchase. Um, we could do things like master classes or, you know, uh, you know, personal coaching or something along those lines. That could be like another level up if we really wanted to. But when you're talking about tiers of products and if you're going to create a suite of products in any way, shape, or form, you kind of want to have an idea of what that next thing is. And we didn't think about it. I'll be honest, like, I feel like we kind of lucked out, to be perfectly honest, um, you know, just in the way that those things worked out um, and the way that they led into each other. Uh, but if I were to go back and do it, like, I would probably switch them around a little bit. Because if you have a podcast, um, you're essentially creating an audience and you can create a mailing list and, you know, uh, leverage those conversations to figure out what exactly your course offering should be. I'm not saying you can't create a course first because you absolutely can. Because that, uh, if you know what you, uh, if you have a particular skill or ability and you want to teach other people, then it's a matter of finding all those other people and finding, you know, where they're searching for how to learn that. I think that's great. Cindy? Um, so one of the things I keep hearing you saying over and over again is, well, when we tested this and when we tested that, can you kind of just talk about the importance of, of you know, testing things in, in your business as you're working to grow it? Um, well, sure. I mean, going back to uh, the the idea of testing the piece where we said, okay, well, we're going to test, you know, does it, does open enrollment make sense? Because we heard that from people like, um, look, we didn't know any better uh, we didn't know any other way to launch a membership site and have it as a course other than treat it as a product launch. It was like, this is a new software product. It's like, we didn't know any better. We just kind of discovered that. So, what you, but we, what we kept hearing from people was, why can't I sign up? I'd really like to sign up now and I missed the deadline. Um, and so we said, okay, well, we'll try this out and see how it works. And that was more, it was partially a result of people asking us. But when you go back and look at the numbers, you know, what would like look at your own business and then take the take a look at that bottom number, the revenue number and multiply by four and tell me what it does for your business. Like that's the importance of testing. And that's a, a very blunt assessment of it. If you could take your revenue number right now and multiply it by four, why would you not do that? And why would you not test different things to try and find something that might work that well? There could be there. It's very easy to assume that there's only one way of doing things if that's the only way you've ever done it and not try to tweak things or change things. Um, at MicroConf every year, for example, we tell, I mean, our, and our audience is cool with it because mostly they're software people and they get that we change things. But about 80% of it, we leave the same year over year because it's successful and we don't want to break it. But at the same time, we need to find other things that work or maybe they don't work. And we so we tweak or test about 15 or 20% of the, the things that we're doing each year. Sometimes that's like one one time um, 
uh, attendee talks came out of that. We said, well, you know, there's a lot of smart people in the room. Let's see if uh, some of them want to get up on stage. So we put out a call for it and said, hey, you can apply here. We let them vote on it. Four people went up on stage, and that's been a mainstay for the past several years. Like People love that. They love getting up and sharing what they can do. And that's not something that we would have figured out if we hadn't you know, tested it. Yeah, it's interesting. I think a lot of it comes back to mindset. You know, often, again, the, the clients that I'm working with, they have so much like mentally and emotionally invested in what they're launching that they're not treating it like an experiment to just see how it goes and how it lands and being able to be flexible with it. Um, and so if they aren't successful, rather than trying an alternate route, they're thinking that they failed with it or, you know, that, that, that that's not the route that they should go. But having kind of the mind, mindset of, you know, well, let's just see how this goes. And if we need to pivot, then we will do so or what have you. So I think that, uh, I think it's good to have that approach with anything. It's good to have that approach, but I won't say that it's easy either because it's very it's very easy to fall into the trap of if I don't do this right or the right way now, I'm never going to get another chance or things are going to break. And then you start envisioning all these other problems and then you start trying to solve problems that you don't have. Um, and it's just creating more work for yourself that, quite frankly, doesn't need to be done. So like, it, I won't say that that's easy because I don't, you know, I don't want, I definitely don't want to minimize that aspect of it because it's really hard for most people, especially the types of people who would be listening to this podcast, the types of people who are, who are like creating their own businesses, they tend to be smart people and smart people do not want to make mistakes and they're always looking for the optimal ways to do things. And it's not easy to put yourself in a mindset where you say, well, I may not be always right and I may not know exactly what I'm doing and I may not know the optimal solution. And you may have a good solution but like the, you know, there's a difference between like a local maximum versus a global maximum. And, you know, you may be close to a good solution that's in the vicinity of what you're doing, but like a complete website redesign is way over in left field. Maybe that's the right solution. Sometimes it is and sometimes it's not. Um, but, and you do have to hedge your bets a little bit. That's why at MicroConf we test 20%, not 50 or 70%. Because like I said, we don't want to destroy the whole thing that we've done, but, you know, we're looking for minor tweaks because we feel like we're, got things pretty dialed in. Um, but, you know, there's always room for improvement. You know, if it was going terrible, maybe we'd make some drastic changes. But, you know, as I said, like, we only have one opportunity each year to do that. If you have 12 per year, you can test out one or two. Yeah, I think that's really good advice. Jonathan? Yeah, just one, um, you know, about the conference, because um, one thing I think um, somebody that's, you know, started uh, a podcast and then, done their membership, they could look at a virtual conference as a kind of middle ground to a physical one, couldn't they, Mike? Yeah, they can. That's, a, that's something that we've looked at a couple of times. And then, but logistically, it's hard, um, you know, at least for us because of the, the size of our audience and there's concern yeah. about devaluing the in-person conference as well. Yes. Um, that said, like for an in-person conference, you know, to, to attend MicroConf, people's typically spend a couple thousand dollars, you know, they have to buy the ticket itself and then they have to pay for travel, airfare, you know, all, all in. I mean, you could be in if you, especially if you're coming in from overseas. I mean, we have people fly in from New Zealand, for example, they spend 30 hours on a plane just to get there. And I don't know the exact cost of that flight, but I imagine it's not cheap. So, you know, let's assume they're all in for like $4,000 to come there for a week. That's expensive. And you should be the kind of conference you should do a competition about who got to who came the furthest the cheapest we did oh furthest the cheapest we usually do furthest, furthest not the cheapest 
That'd be hard to calculate because some people, you know, live right there in, in town. Like, would you do a dollar yeah, per mile? You, you could build an app where you could work at distance oh, the cost. Could this be sounds a, like work. That yeah, sounds like work. Right. Um, we're going to wrap up the podcast part of the show. Hopefully, Mike's going to stay on for some bonus content when I'm going to ask him about when Rob, you know, said to him, I'm going to start Drip. What was Mike's initial response to that badness? Uh, um, and a couple of other things that should be really interesting. The conversation's been mind-blowing so far. Such value. Mike, how can our listeners and viewers find out more about you and what you're up to? Sure. So the easiest place to find me is probably on Twitter. So you can find my Twitter, Twitter handle is single founder. Um, and that, that's more a reference to uh, solo founder, solopreneur versus, you know, me being single because I am married. I've gotten that question before. It's kind of funny. <laughs> I never thought about it until afterwards. It's so, whatever. Um, that's probably the best place to find me. Um, I also have a website, singlefounder.com and a few other places, but Type my name into a search engine, Mike Tabor. It's hard to miss me. <laughs> that was great, Mike. The interview's been a joy. Um, Cindy, um, how can people find out more about you and what you're up to, Cindy? Well, you can find uh, more about me at um, thecoursewhisperer.com. So if you're creating a course and need help with how to put it all together, that's exactly what I do. And Cindy's been having Mac troubles last week, but she sorted them out. She's bought a new shiny Mac. And she's, you know, she's trying to work it all out, folks. She'll get there. And, folks, if you want to find more about WP Tonic, we're the guys that help you build, maintain, and give you consultancy. If you're looking to build that membership site, we're the people. That's what we do. We'll be back next week. We're going to have a great guest like Mike sharing his experience and insights with you, listeners and viewers. We'll see you soon, folks. Bye. Thanks for listening to WP Tonic, the podcast that gives you a spoonful of WordPress medicine twice a week.